0: Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the wonderful Lynn Twist, author of The Soul of Money. Though today, we're going to talk about her just-released book, Living a Committed Life. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com sample-policy. Spotpet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company, and produce Spotpet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spotpet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in, and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct.
1: A life devoted to something larger than yourself is a life worth living. It's a life that is in recognition of life, is given to us. It's given to us so that we can give it. We're blessed so that we can bless. We're born, I think, I can't prove this, but I've experienced it, to make the contribution that's uniquely ours to make. And when you find that Dharma, that, that discover that who you areness is a match for what's wanted in the world. Oh my God, it's so, it's so thrilling that I wanted to do everything I could to make that available to people. Because it's not only wonderful for you, the world needs us now. The world always did, but now the crises are so deep, so profound, so intense, so everywhere, so in every part of society, in every economic class, in every country, in every language, in every culture that it's all hands on deck, and what a thrilling time to be live when it's an
0: all-hands-on-deck moment. So says Lynn Twist. Lynn is a world-renowned visionary committed to alleviating poverty, ending world hunger, and supporting social justice and sustainability. Her 40-year career has taken her from working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta to the refugee camps in Ethiopia and the threatened rainforests of the Amazon. To guiding the philanthropic efforts of some of the world's wealthiest families. Her breadth of experience led her to found the Soul of Money Institute, where she has worked with hundreds of thousands of people all over the world on topics such as fundraising with integrity, practicing conscious philanthropy, and creating a healthy relationship with money. Lynn first translated her stories and life experiences into the best-selling book, The Soul of Money: Transforming Your Relationship with Money in Life. So she joins us today to discuss her latest, Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself. In the book and in our conversation, Lynn reveals the guiding principles that have enabled her to live as a thought leader and activist, teaching us that a committed life is one worth living. That sometimes the commitment alone is enough to ensure that it happens. The universe is telling us repeatedly that we are in this together, she says. And in a world that sometimes feels chaotic and devoid of meaning, it's incumbent that we draw together around what it means to be human. Okay, let's get to our conversation. I now have three copies of your new book, Two? which is. <laughs> How did that happen? I don't know, but I runneth over with your new book. It's a sign from the universe. And as you know, I'm I'm such a fan of The Soul of Money. In fact, I wrote about you and I wrote about that book specifically. I have a book coming out next spring about women and the seven deadly sins and what we police in ourselves and in each other. So your book was foundational when I was working through greed and and women and money and oh yeah so thank you thank you uh, wow so i highlighted your book intensively this last book which is there's so many really beautiful moments and we'll go through the parts at least that really hit me in the heart and i know that you've Spent your life in a committed way. But can you talk about that as sort of the organizing thesis of this book of living a committed life?
1: Well, let's see. I discovered really that I was living a committed life while I was doing it. And I'm, you know, in the book, I talk about how to create conditions where you can find your committed life. But those conditions were created for me. And I just need to admit that I was. Fortunate enough to to meet Buckminster Fuller and Werner Erhard right in the same period of my life as a young woman, and was super super transformed by those two human beings and their way of living and being and the way of seeing the world. And when I was able to help them meet each other, then the miracle that was born out of that was the Hunger Project, and I became a like a midwife, to something that wanted to happen, that would have happened maybe anyway, but I was lucky enough to be there in the right place at the right time. And then it swept me off my feet and I became completely, let's say, almost in love with the idea that a human being like me, that anybody could make that kind of a difference with their life. And it became the center of my parenting, the center of my marriage, the center of my worldview the center of my way of walking in the world and I've had such an awesome life as a result a knife life I couldn't have planned I couldn't have you know if I if I if someone had said you know you can have any life you want I wouldn't have thought this one up because I would have thought it was impossible you know so I I realized somewhere along the way that and I started talking about this this I used this phrase committed life Where my commitments, my vision for the world and my commitment to that vision is so much bigger than I could ever accomplish by myself (laughs) or that I can probably ever see in my own lifetime. So it's so humbling. You realize the only way to be effective is to become the instrument of something and to collaborate with everybody everywhere. And that gives you relationships that are so awesome that you kind of have to pinch yourself, like, you know, I always like to say to people that I worked with Mother Teresa, because people can kind of can't even believe that. And I can't either. So I have to kind of (laughs) say it to believe it myself. And, you know, someone like Desmond Tutu was in my life, you know, and I think, holy moly, etc. And then people like you, people like the people listening to this, who would be drawn to something like living a committed life that is a life not starring yourself, although you're kind of critical to it, but a life that's way bigger than than your life starring you. And, And your life starring you can be such a burden, you know, trying to measure up and fit in and look good and be thin or be young or be smart or be everywhere you want to be in everywhere you think you should be and be everything to everybody you think you should be. It's just exhausting (laughs) and not very satisfying. But a life devoted to something larger than yourself is a life worth living. It's a life that is in recognition of life is given to us. It's given to us so that we can give it. We're blessed so that we can bless. We're born, I think, I can't prove this, but I've experienced it, to make the contribution that's uniquely ours to make, and when you find that Dharma that that discover that who you areness is a match for what's wanted in the world, oh my god, it's so it's so thrilling that I wanted mm-hmm. to do everything I could to make that available to people, because it's not only wonderful for you, the world needs us now. The world always did. But now the crises are so deep, so profound, so intense, so everywhere, so in every part of society, in every economic class, in every country, in every language, in every culture, that it's all hands on deck. And what a thrilling time to be alive when it's an all hands on deck moment. And it is. It is. So that's why.
0: No, certainly. I mean, we're going to dig into all of that, but what I love... Sort of at the beginning of the book, you set up this foundational idea that you write, people often think that great leaders are born, not made, that they are somehow destined for greatness. I believe, however, it's the opposite, that committing oneself to an inspiring cause is what forges you into a great human being. And that you write about how you don't have to be smart enough or extremely talented or knowledgeable enough to commit. And that once you make that commitment, then the resources and what you need invariably come your way. It's sort of putting yourself in that flow of the river guides you to where you need to go. And and that's such a beautiful life because I think – or beautiful idea because I think so many people struggle from imposter syndrome or an excess of humility, right? Of how could I possibly do anything meaningful, particularly in the context of sort of the great – social change that's required. But like you, I think everyone, it's an all hands on deck and that it's a much more having a feeling like I'm trying to make this transition at this stage of my life. It feels so, so incredibly meaningful and rich. And I would say for anyone who's listening who hasn't read The Soul of Money, which is really about this idea of enoughness And a different concept of abundance. And there are some amazing Mother Teresa stories in there. For everyone who's listening who's sort of transfixed or caught in that idea of scarcity or feeling like they couldn't possibly move into something a little bit more service-oriented, you can. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, girl. Yes. (laughs) And I know you're a spiritual person. I am as well. But you also talk about it as sort of it, that not being a requirement for doing this work. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit more about that for people who, I think most of the people who listen to this are quite spiritual, but for people who aren't, how does that, And but I feel like anyone can understand sort of a resonance or a synchronicity or that goodness, right? That maybe lights up your heart.
1: Yeah. Well, one way of looking at it without labeling it God or spirit or, you know, something that an atheist or someone who's agnostic might not relate to, it's really, it's the power of love Mm. and love and vitality, aliveness, what makes life worth living (laughs) when you love what you're doing when you love that you have the privilege and opportunity of doing it or being it or engaging in it, it's 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 extraordinary, and you end up loving the people you're doing it with, and they end up loving you, and that's what we all want, you know, no matter what what, what our belief systems are. No one can deny that giving and receiving love is 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 what we're made of, you know, what what why we were born in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to make a just a little adjustment or a comment when you sent something about humility. I want to make a distinction. I think I make this in the book. I can't remember what's in there and what's not. But I've learned in my life that humility is different than modesty. Yeah. And mostly we're engaged in modesty, which is false. And I would say modesty is the flip side of arrogance. You know, modesty is being afraid to be arrogant. yeah, so it's just another form of arrogance when we're oh, it wasn't my doing. oh, I didn't do it. Oh, I could never do that. Oh, that's way over my head. Those kinds of statements which we all make and we kind of get hooked by, are in in one way, a kind of a kind of arrogance, and I'll explain this to you with a story. I have a, a wonderful, wonderful colleague named David Tucker. He passed away, unfortunately, but this is a, a beautiful story. And I can't remember if this is in the book, but he, he was having trouble with his marriage. He had a wonderful, beautiful wife and two little girls and they were having struggles, you know, like people do. And he was feeling terrible about himself and he was feeling I'm not a good dad, I'm not a good provider. I've been, I'm not living up to the kind of husband I need to be. You know, I'm, I'm I'm a total jerk. I life sucks. I'm I'm terrible. I'm a bad guy. That was where he went into a ceremony with some shamans, a shaman in the Amazonian rainforest where I work. And he shared this with me and I this was a very powerful story for me. And so he wanted the the shaman and the ceremony to fix him. This kind of where what his entry <laughs> request was. And when he was in the ceremony, he heard this booming clear message you could say or voice from wherever. So this is this takes a little bit of a stretch of one's belief system, but saying how dare you this this voice said, how dare you question? my creation
0: Mm.
1: how dare you doubt Mm. the creator and it was like how dare you insult my creation now whether you believe in god or a great a greater being or whatever this story is instructive because What happened for David was he realized, no, my life has been given to me. It's a gift. What am I doing? Questioning that, messing with it, making it wrong, putting myself down, making myself completely unable to function. What am I doing with this gift that I've been given? How dare I take the precious gift of life and demean it and diminish it and hold it back? And it 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 was like a, you know, hit, being hit over the head by a two by four. You know, it's like, oh my God, I, I I need to stop doubting and questioning. and I need to get with the program and 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 just give my best, give my all, give myself over. And i I say that that's an example of the voice was calling his doubt and his, oh, I couldn't do it. I'm too small. I'm too little. I'm not able. I'm not smart enough, and I'm not handsome enough. I'm not young enough, et cetera insulting that arrogance. In other words, the voice was telling him he was being arrogant rather than modest or modesty is a form of arrogance. Mm -hmm. Once I think you discover that you're the instrument on the planet now of moving the dial, of moving the action forward, of the transformation we're all seeking, whether we know it or not, then you're humbled by that. And humility is healthy, humility is honest, humility is real. It doesn't insult or deny anything. You are in touch with the privilege of being alive. So Mm -hmm. I just say that about this humility, because I think it gets confused with modesty. Modesty is a false degradation of oneself. Humility is discovering who you really are, and it's humbling to discover it.
0: It's also, I, th- I think the etymology of humility is hummus or soil, earth. So it denotes sort of being grounded, really standing in who you are. It's a beautiful word. I yeah. you. Oh, thank you. Um, hummus.
1: I know that that's information for me. Good.
0: Robert Half Research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. All right. So this I thought was an incredible moment in the book. You talk about the difference between taking a stand and taking a position and how different they are. And obviously we conflate these two ideas and take a position all the time and work ourselves really into corners, right? Can you talk a little bit about why that's such an important distinction?
1: Yes. Well, I make a a distinction between taking a position and taking a stand in this way. If When you take a position, the nature of positionality is it creates its oppositionality. So if I say yes, it creates no. If I say left, it creates right. If I say up, it generates down. If I say here, it generates there. If I say we, it generates they. So positionality always creates its oppositionality. And positionality, another way of talking about what a position is, it's a point of view. And if you think about the phrase point of view and kind of unpack it it's a point from which you view so for example you know in a theater someone sitting in the front row in the center will have a particular point of view of the stage and the actors and the actresses but someone sitting in the far left side in the last row on the right hand side will have a very very different point of view of the stage and the actors and the actresses Both points of view are totally 100% accurate for the people who are holding them. They're 100% accurate. You you really can't argue with the point of view for for it is from whence that person is seeing the world. And it's true for them. That's also a position. We form our positions from our point of view, which might be the way we were raised or whether or not we're an American or a Russian or a a woman or a man or, or, or gay or straight. So our point of view or our position is determined by from whence we see, from where we see, and positionality gets us in a lot of trouble because it's very important. You need to know where you are in the room to get to the door. So that's posi- that's you know a point of view, and also that's where what's your position on the game board. So it's very important, and there's nothing wrong with it. But we we get confused, and we think our point of view or our position is right, and everything else is wrong. When in fact, every point of view is useful. And how I know that is because when you relinquish your point of view and let it go, even slightly, you can have the space, the power of taking a stand. And when you take a stand, it's almost like going up above the auditorium where the people are sitting and seeing all points of view are useful. You know, the director of the production needs to have a vision of where all the points of view in the theater are going to experience the production. But a point of view really is very, very important when you relinquish it and you're committed to something larger than your point of view, what you get back is vision. And that's what you get from taking a stand. Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and I'll move the world. And that's what Gandhi had. He took a stand. And then from there, Yes, he would drop down, if I can put it that way, and take positions. No, I think the British should get out of India. I think this law is unjust. I think this, I think that. But he didn't become his point of view. Who he was was a stand that all people have a chance for a healthy and productive life. Who Martin Luther King was, was a stand. And when you hear his voice on his birthday January 15th, they play on NPR, all his speeches, and I just love that, because you just hear the Timber's voice. You hear, this is a man who's taken a stand, and it doesn't mean he didn't have positions here and there about this bill and that thing, this is wrong, this is right, but who he was, where he worked from, where he lived from was a stand that all people be freed, be liberated, have a have a voice, have a chance for a healthy and productive life, just like Gandhi most stands are all stands i think really authentic stands are completely inclusive all stands are stands are are something you can't check off it's not like a to do you can't check it off in your lifetime and say i did that you don't take credit for your stand you live it it's a it's a really powerful way to look at life and i've taken a stand now i realize to live a committed life i have within that a stand to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet, which is also the mission of the Pachamama Alliance. That's not something I can check off and say done, but I can participate. I can live my life from that stand. And then the positions or points of view that I take, it's almost like dropping down into the action and taking positions. But from a stand, you're empowered to see you have true vision and you see all points of view and they're all useful. They're all useful. Yeah. One's not right and one's not wrong. They're all useful. You see everything. So that's a brief description.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it goes to that Buckminster Fuller quote. That famous quote that you include, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And then you write also about within taking a stand, taking a stand for something, not against something, going back to that positionality idea of this is right and that's wrong. But creating the world, I mean, it, it sounds like such a cliche, but taking a stand for the world that we all want to see, that we recognize would be inclusive, mutually beneficial, sustainable, that long list that you just rattled off, kind, hopefully more just, Mm -hmm. loving, but that we can't get there. And, And we're seeing this, right? Like we're seeing government grind to a halt in this country, at least. We're seeing a lot of things. We're living in very interesting times, but someone, we're waiting, I think, for a moment of, actually, can we build all of these, as you said, their people's points of view, which inherently makes them valid. To deny the validity of someone's point of view is to deny their humanity. But how do we understand those points of view and build them towards something bigger? Well, I,
1: I don't know the answer to that. There's no formula for it. But but if we look at history, we'll see that the people who really changed the game or transformed the situation or moved the dial, I like to say, are people who didn't do it through positionality, actually. So you think about, I mean, Gandhi's is such a g- great example because my life is my message, he said, and he really lived his stand. Martin Luther King is another beautiful example. I would call my aunt... aunt Chalu, another example. I would call Nelson another example. The people who really changed things really dramatically did it from a, a, a place that you and I would call a spiritual root,
0: mm-hmm. not
1: from a position. Now, obviously, Nelson Mandela was against apartheid. Of course, he was. But what he really lived from is liberating all human souls, including, you know, I tell the story about Nelson Mandela in, in the book. Including his jailers, including the apartheid government. He wanted to liberate them too. He knew it was as painful for them to be crushing black people and crushing their rights every day. It was dehumanizing them as much it was as 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 much as, as it was dehumanizing the people who they were targeting. And that is a stand. That's like these are the bad. That's not. These are the bad guys, and these are the good guys. It's it's not that way. So even now, you know, I struggle with what's happening in in the United States. What's happening? I was just in 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 England, and obviously, right now, while you and I are talking, that they're just in a mess. The prime minister just resigned. The queen died. They can't figure out who's who's in charge over there, and they've left the, the European Union. And you know, it's a mess. And everybody's fighting over everything. And the same thing with our country. But people are stuck in their positionality and their points of view. And this person's wrong. This person's wrong. I struggle with it, too, when I think about this whole the election was stolen, you know, falsehood, etc. But where can I stand for this nation in a way that I can hear all voices, hear the frustration and hurt and upset and, and, and passion that's behind these points of view that have gotten so rigid that they're now like almost crazy. And where can we stand that will allow people to be heard so they can be fully expressed? Because when you're fully heard and fully expressed, you can release your point of view, at least to some extent. When you're not heard, when you're argued with, you, you get more entrenched. You know, if you look at pro-life and pro-choice, the stronger pro-life gets, the stronger pro-choice gets. I mean, we've just seen this with the reversal of Roe v. Wade. So now everybody's like more positional than ever. So it's not like one side's really going to win. It's more like, where do we stand where we can hear each other's passion, hear each other's reverence for, for life itself? Where can we find the deep humanity and love and still have our points of view? Not that anybody's wrong and anybody's right, but just be in In the inquiry together in a way that we live consistent with our deepest humanity. I don't have a formula for that, but I know that that's what's wanted now. I know that it's like we're in a collective species transformation. Yeah. There's a phrase I use in the book that I got from Michael Beckwith and Rev. D., Reverend Deborah Johnson pain pushes until vision pulls. Mm. And the pain that's pushing now is so intense and pain is going to push us until vision pulls us. And the pain of the positionality and getting more and more rigid and more and more certain that we're right. And all the algorithms that keep feeding us more information that makes us feel righter and righter and righter, and everybody else wronger and wronger and wronger is, is just, completely unhealthy we need to lift ourselves up out of that listen to each other and it's hard to do it's really hard to do because we're so entrenched now but it's possible it's possible if you look at the end of apartheid that was i mean just think about how deep those beliefs were that people white people Afrikaners, were so certain that people of another color were, were, were not were subhuman that they had to let go of that position, and they were raised generation after generation, generation to believe that the and the people who were who had black skin believed it themselves that they were subhuman. They they got into that mindset themselves. When you think about the Indians and Gandhi, and that they actually the British walked out of India. They, it was it wasn't a civil war. No, they walked out of India. It's a, it's incredible when you think about the. You know, the, there's so many, and we've got so far to go. I'm not saying it's over, and South Africa is still struggling, and prejudice abounds, and look at our country, my God. But at the same time, something's afoot, and really afoot. The climate crisis, as I say in the book, and as I, I know you know, I believe is is powerful, powerful feedback from our mother mm-hmm. telling her children, come on, you guys. I'm gonna, you know, I'm giving you big feedback about the way you're living, the way you're thinking, the way you're relating to me, the way you're relating to the community of life, the way you're relating to each other. The pandemic is feedback, big feedback. It, perhaps it is not happening to us. Perhaps it's really happening for us to awaken us so that we can recreate what it means to be human. I think this is epic, 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 epic history be in the making now. you know, there's this wonderful, Phrase from, I think it came from Werner Earhart, I heard it through who founded Aston Landmark. He said, When the first fish crawled up on land, suddenly elephants and eagles were possible. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in that kind of a transformation, an evolutionary leap, where, like that moment when a fish crawled up on land and suddenly elephants and eagles were possible i love that phrase we're in that kind of a moment or the the breakdowns are everywhere everything's not working which is really kind of awesome because we realize the whole thing is off the whole thing yeah. it's not just adjustment over here adjustment over there the whole thing is off the economic system's off education system's off healthcare's off the way we relate to the natural world the way we relate to animals the way we relate to food it's all not wrong, it's just off. And we can yeah. adjust that. We can. we can.
0: We must, and I know we will. I woke up at two a m last night, drenched in sweat, throwing, bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally The ChiliPad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want... A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me/slash thread to get your ChiliPad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for pulling the thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleepslleep.me/thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. I love that quote about how pain pushes until vision pulls. I mean, it's it feels like we're in a birth canal. And you talk about too the difference between change and transformation, and how you know change is almost this micro shift or or a disavowal of what's come before us, right? Sort of a oh we're just gonna go in a different direction and abandon that rather than using everything that we've learned everything we know to transform to to create and birth something new a different system one that's not just moderately tweaked or slightly more evolved but something wholly wholly new mhm mhm yeah. yeah yeah without destroying what what's gotten us to where we are it's it's a much more loving in a way much more loving word.
1: Well, and it's all standing on the shoulders of what has come before. You know, it's kind of like an honoring of the past rather than a denigrating of it. It's brought us to the point where we actually now can take an evolutionary leap. We have so many tools, such technology. We're so connected by the internet and the miracle of technology. We understand the trees now are communicating to us. We understand the network, the mycorrhizal fungal network underneath the ground that's that's now reverberating and communicating with forests of the world, for example. We understand things we didn't understand. And the more we understand, the more we have the permission to take an evolutionary leap. You know, it's, it's an honoring of the past that we can take this kind of a leap now, that we're conscious enough you know, people like you who are running programs that awaken and enlighten and that are insightful and that that talk about the beingness. There's, you know, thousands of podcasts that are, are doing the, the work now. And mm-hmm. we're all on Zoom, you know, learning how to live in absolute communion with each other. We had a pandemic, we still have it, that connected us that made it really clear no one can hide. You can lock your doors and put masks on and put air filters everywhere and you still get, you know, you can still get sick. So the, the universe is telling us over and over and over again that we're in this together, that we're in, we're off course. We're we're not flawed fundamentally, but we're mistaken and we can correct. And so that's a, that's just a treasure of a gift. And you know we're 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 so fortunate to be alive now with all this is that has come before. You know some of it's dark and terrible, and we want no more of it. But it's taught us. You know the George Floyd murder. It was a murder. It was a horrible, viscerally, just almost unconfrontable murder, and we saw it. You know, way more times than we wanted to. And it wasn't the Game of Thrones, it wasn't actors, it wasn't special effects, it was actually someone murdering somebody in the name of the law. And that was not the only one, obviously, you know, there's like hundreds, thousands of them, but that one somehow was pivotal to have us take another really powerful step forward with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it, it didn't transform the whole thing. No, we're still colonial in our thinking. We're still, you know, being very, very unkind to each other. There's still rampant racism in, in all of us. But something is happening. Something is afoot. It's so clearly showing us a new way. And I, I feel, you know, as, as when I read the paper, I think, oh, my God. Or listen to the news. Oh, my God. However, here we are. And we're in it together and there's no escape. There's no escape valve, no matter how much money people have, no matter how high, high the fences are around their, their Island or their, their mansion, they can't escape it when we run out of water. So we're, we're, it's a beautiful, beautiful, humbling time to be alive. Challenging. Yes. Difficult. Yes. But that's when courage is needed and courage comes from the heart. We're not going to think our way out of this. We're going to feel our way through it. And when we start feeling each other and feeling our way through it, something new will be born in our capacity to be human.
0: You wrote about your dear friend, Linda Curtis, and this idea of honorable closure, because I thought they were so beautiful as a map for... Letting something be so that you can move forward into something new. Okay, so the first step is to tell the old story in a new way. And the predominant quality of that step is gratitude. Linda's second step is to resolve any regrets that you may have with willingness and humility. The third step is to let go of the past and let it be. And the primary quality required is forgiveness of yourself and others And then Linda's fourth step is to invent the next story. And that often is about reclaiming joy. When something ends, there's always something that's beginning. I love that. Stunning. And both also in its acknowledgement of what happened and that idea of letting it be, just let it be. So many of us, I think, ruminate or rehash moments when we wish we could have been better, kinder, more evolved, but to let it be is i think so critical to being able to allow yourself to be something new right
1: mhm mhm mm-hmm. yeah that's a beautiful four step process and you know it's what she's really written is what we kind of naturally do when we're when we're in touch with ourselves mm-hmm. we rethink oh my god my divorce was so painful and i was so nasty to my ex or you know i've heard people say this i'm not divorced but i know a lot of women go through that, and I was I t- turned into some sort of a monstrous bitch. Who was that person? <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know what happened to me, but I know I'll never be that way again, and then I regret this, and I, I've got to let go of, of thinking that he's anything other than the father of my kids and someone I you know, chose to live life with for a certain number of years. And now I'm so independent, and I'm so grateful that I'm free of a relationship that constricted me, and he is too, and we can be friends. And, you know, you hear people do that, and you think, wow, how courageous. It takes courage. It takes heart. It's the highest form of love, really. Mother Teresa said, forgiveness is the highest form of love and the most difficult. And it's just powerful to close a chapter in a way that honors it, honors the past, forgives, and that completion really always will generate an experience of love, an experience of love and a new future. They get born at the same time. Mm. So yeah,
0: that's a beautiful
1: thing that Linda's an expert in that.
0: High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. What I love about the book and about your life is this difference between service versus servitude. And I think so many women in particular have received a message of selflessness, selfless devotion, unmet needs or not acknowledging our own needs so that we can serve other people's needs. And that is not what this is about either. I think at the end you write about a friend, I can't remember who had this quote, learn to drink as you pour so the spiritual heart cannot run dry and you always have love to give. And you talk again about another form of arrogance, which is to separate yourself from your work and to presume that you also, that you shouldn't be included in the service. Can you talk a little bit about that, sort of how to bring, rather than abnegating our own needs and our own existence in this idea of service, but how to Make it encompass all of it.
1: Well, I I discovered that by not doing that. You know, <laughs> I discovered that one. I mean, there's a there's a model. I think it's a 20th century model, and you know maybe we just needed to go through that particular period of what's called charity. And you know, Mother Teresa was a, a, a emblem of an iconic version of that. And charity has in its sort of. When you say the word, you kind of think it's got sacrifice in it. You know, you got to sacrifice yourself somehow to be charitable. You have to give up something. And actually, I like to replace the word charity with solidarity. And solidarity is a partnership between people who have different aspects or different, let's say, assets that when they come together, it makes a third thing that's mm-hmm. really extraordinary. So I, I remember a story I don't tell in that book, but I think I told it in the last one anyway, I'm telling you now, that I, I was in Ethiopia after the 1984-1985 famine, and I I was with women who'd lost all of their children to starvation. And one woman had lost 11 kids. They'd starved to death. One of them was a baby nursing in her breast. Another woman had lost seven children. And Somehow these women, they were so thin and so weak, but they were still alive. They did everything to save their children. Somehow they, there were five of them, who were now childless mothers. And I, we did a whole grief process around a dry well where they told the story, the excruciating death of each one of their children. And then we would wail after each child's story, the story of each child's death. I mean, it was emotionally the most exhausting thing. It was five days and nights. And then I went from Ethiopia to New York to meet with an investment club of women who were wives of mega rich guys on Wall Street. And it was an investment club. And there were actually seven women in Ethiopia that I just left. And then I went to see seven women in a Park Avenue glorious apartment and these women were gorgeous and they'd have every possible thing done to them massages and you know hair and all that stuff they probably had had different kinds of plastic surgery they had more money than god and they were i would call just really hurting hurting in in those ways inside that that no matter how beautiful you are on the outside you know if if the inner life is 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 vapid it hurts and this was an investment club and they wanted to soul of money talk but i couldn't even do it, because I was so raw from the experience of being with the women in Ethiopia who'd lost their all their children to starvation during that famine. And so I told the story of the women in Ethiopia, because at the end of the grieving process, the women in Ethiopia, one by one, all seven of them stood in their, you know, their beautiful Ethiopian garb, and they were real thin, and you know food aid had come, and the famine was over. And they stood and they made a commitment that they would live the rest of their lives to make sure no mother in Ethiopia, do everything they could to make sure no mother in Ethiopia went through what they went through again. And they would get educated, learn to read and write, which they didn't know how to do, learn all kinds of things and and actually go through school. And they wanted to better themselves. And you couldn't tell how old they were, but but they were probably about the same age as the women in New York, in their maybe 40s, I'd say. So I told the story of the, of, of the women in Ethiopia, the women in New York. And the women in New York, you know, and I was crying. I was a complete basket case and everybody was crying at the end. And then I said, there's seven of you and seven of them. Do you think we could do something that would be a collaboration, a co-equal collaboration? Not that you have everything and they have nothing because they have strengths. Courage. They speak the local language. They're committed to educate themselves. They have been through very, very deep grief, so that that deepens the soul. They know when their cattle are thirsty by the color of their fur. They know things. They know how to how to navigate a corrupt government. They know things that are absolutely critical. They have assets, real assets, for ending hunger in Ethiopia. And the women. This is during the hunger project years. And the women in in New York, you know, they had a lot of assets too. They had money, they had, they could get to people in Congress. They had, you know, some of them private planes, you know, they had all kinds of stuff, material assets, but they were impoverished in their soul. And the women in Ethiopia were so strong and so courageous. And so their inner life was so resilient that they were still alive. And so I put these seven women and these seven women together, but in a way that they saw each other as co-equals, as equals coming together. There was nothing charitable about it. It was solidarity, it was partnership. And the women in New York had, you know, needed something to do with their lives that was meaningful. And this was just incredible for them. And they brought their children to Ethiopia. And, you know, it it was amazing and the women in Ethiopia you know all all told after all this years later i can tell you that they went all the way through school you know kindergarten no, 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 all the way they're in their 40s all the way through four of them are are people i still know about three of them have phd's can you imagine that phd's mm-hmm. and one is a lawyer and then the other three I lost track of. One is head of a scientific institute about the environment in Ethiopia. So she has no children anymore, but this is her life, and she's brilliant. Another one is a minister in the government. Government's in trouble right now, but she's still a minister. Another one is the head of a huge university. And then the attorney is one of the leading, has one of the leading law firms now in Ethiopia working on women's rights. And the Women in New York made that possible for the women in Ethiopia. The women in Ethiopia made possible for women in New York, in some cases to leave in a very abusive marriage, in other cases to raise their children in a way that they didn't become monsters, entitled monsters, because they had these relationships in, in Africa. They became, they're running foundations, they're they're just flourishing. So it it's an example of, I can't even remember your question, but nobody was sacrificing everybody was contributing nobody was not included in the transformation they included themselves and one of the things we do sometimes with our eagerness to be everything to everybody as women is we are do everything for everyone else and then we just collapse from exhaustion because we forgot to include ourselves we forgot to eat we forgot to sleep we forgot to get a massage we forgot to take care of ourselves So it's very typical for women, but it's really a powerful thing to realize, no, in making the world work for everyone and everything with no one and nothing left left out, is not you over here and the world over there. That's here. (laughs) In
0: there. Yeah. No, and those shifts, those paradigm shifts are so important. I love this. This is a teaching by Dr. Rachel Naomi Rum that I think about all the time. She says... Helping, fixing, and serving represent three different ways of seeing life. When you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. When you serve, you see life as a whole. And she talks about sort of when we help, we we may inadvertently take away from people more than we could ever give them. We may diminish their self-esteem, their sense of worth, integrity, and wholeness. When I help, I am very aware of my own strength but we don't serve with our strength. We serve with ourselves. We draw from all of our experiences. Our limitations serve, our wounds serve, even our darkness can serve. The wholeness in us serves the wholeness in others and the wholeness of life. I think that's so powerful. It's not beautiful. Is that from,
1: from my grandfather's blessings or which book is that? from?
0: I don't know. I read it in Roshi Joan Halifax's book. And it's funny, I have my grandfather's Blessings but- on my bedside table. I don't know. I'll let you know. But Which one of Roshi's a- books is that in? Which one? That's that's in Standing at the Edge. Uh-huh. Wow. It's such a beautiful and that's yet we live in this fixing fixing and helping culture. And it that's not inclusive of the self. It might be giving of the self, but in a way that's not necessarily there are unintended consequences to that. So I love that idea of just service and seeing the other as whole. Yeah, that's it.
1: Oh, wow. I should have put that in my book. It's too late.
0: (laughs) Dang it. I know, you're off to the printers. I'd like to think of myself as a proactivist. I love that term. And it can be hard, as she said, particularly in the context of everything that's happening here and around the world. And I think we can look at the fact that it's happening all around the world as another example of those cosmic death pains so that we can go back into the womb and come out anew that we're all experiencing these aren't isolated events this is something that's global on scale and we went over a little quickly, so I wanted to go back to it, but this difference between transformation and change and why I think that this slight shift in language that she uses is so powerful. We talk a lot about change, and sure, we want we want change in some contexts. It's a totally adequate word. But it suggests that what came before is inherently wrong, bad, or the wrong direction, and I think as we try to acknowledge so that we can process fully where we've been, so that we can honor it for the way that it's shaped us in the here and now, we need to think about something that's a bit bigger than change, a bit more all-encompassing, rather than just, oh, we took that wrong turn, so we're gonna take a right turn. It doesn't really metabolize history. In a way, it's sort of just trying to move away from the things that we might not like about ourselves, either as people, or as a country, or as humanity. It suggests, oh, yes, those were vile things and we're in a new direction, rather than actually taking the time to recognize and integrate where we've been. So she says... Transformation has a completely different dynamic than change. Transformation doesn't accuse the past or current situation of being wrong, bad, or undesirable. Rather, transformation shifts the perspective such that what so or what came before suddenly makes sense. It embraces the current reality and has it make sense in a new light. Transformation actually completes the past, makes sense of the present, and generates a future that blossoms out of what's so now. It turns what is deemed no longer useful or not right into the perfect platform or pathway to the next space. It is respectful rather than critical, affirms rather than denies, includes rather than excludes. It becomes a platform from which we take the next leap. This is a hard distinction, of course, because there are so many things in our personal pasts and our collective past that fill us with shame and that we would love to undo or have never happened at all. And yet it did. It's the truth. And denying it isn't getting us anywhere either. So I'm here for the transformation, less so for just change. Thanks for listening.